Walter Lippmann was an American journalist in the early 20th century. He won a Pulitzer Prize in 1958, and then another one in 1961. And although he did a lot, he's especially known for his views about the role of news in a democracy. Sort of like these days, there were questions looming during Lippmann's time about how we can trust a democratic process when the public is so often uninformed or even misinformed. What's the role of news media in a functioning democracy? Th th those sorts of things. And in 1922, he wrote an influential book called Public Opinion, where he explored these ideas. And it was in that book that Walter Lippmann coined the term stereotype. Stereotypes is the title of part three in the book, and it starts like this. Each of us lives and works on a small part of the Earth's surface moves in a small circle, and of these acquaintances knows only a few intimately. But inevitably, our opinions cover a bigger space, a longer reach of time, a greater number of things than we can directly observe. They have, therefore, to be pieced together out of what others have reported and what we can imagine. The main point of the book, as he writes, is that the world that we have to deal with politically is out of reach, out of sight, out of mind. It has to be explored, reported, and imagined. But this means that we end up relying on what he calls the pictures inside our heads. We have a picture of war inside our heads. We have a picture of poverty inside our heads. But these pictures, naturally, are distortions based on limited information that we're getting from the news, among other places. So that's where we get the modern meaning of the word stereotype. Littman's point was about how stereotypes are basically the epitome of public opinion, which raises questions about democracy and media. But the use of that word has evolved a little bit, and now stereotype mostly describes the assumptions people make about social groups. There are stereotypes that Jewish people are stingy, that Americans are loud, that Asian kids are good at math. It's the same idea. Pictures inside our heads. Abstractions, based on limited, biased information. It's the knowledge we think we have about a person when we learn their race, their sexual orientation, their occupation, their political affiliation, whatever. And this raises an intriguing question about our psychology. Because everyone you meet is defined by a whole bunch of identities. Everyone can be thought of in terms of their race or their gender or their nationality, or even by a specific combination of those identities. Lots of possible pictures inside our heads. But which picture comes into clearest focus in the moment? You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and I was really excited to talk to today's guest, Chris Petsko. Chris is a postdoc at Duke University, but before that, he got his PhD in social psychology at Northwestern University. I've known Chris for a while, and he's the kind of guy you're always excited to see at a conference because he's super sharp and super friendly. And over the last few years, he's been developing what he calls a lens-based account of intersectional stereotyping. It's basically a way of thinking about when people jump to one stereotype or another when forming an impression of someone. And we'll talk more about this in the conversation, but the idea of intersectional stereotyping is just that, for example, someone might be thought of primarily as a woman, primarily as an Asian American person, or as the intersection, as an Asian American woman. 
Anyhow, we talk about all of this stuff, the big picture and the minutia. It's a fun conversation and we jump straight in. So here's me and Chris Petsko talking about a lens model of intersectional stereotyping. You know, one of the things that, that I find interesting about it is it's framed very much as like this n novel approach to understanding how intersectional identities get wrapped up in stereotyping. But my read of it actually is that it's more like a clear theory of stereotyping and social categories. And oh, it also happens to nicely account for this intersectional thing. But like ultimately, even if no one was paying attention to intersectionality, the model still is a contribution, right? Would you say that that's the case? I think so, yeah. Um, I think, I, think I, I thought of the lens model as coming from an older theoretical tradition of thinking about stereotyping and how, you know, how we process the people around us that made a clear contribution to reconciling the messy literature on intersectional stereotyping. But you're absolutely right that the model is broader than that particular, than explaining just that particular phenomenon. I think it can really explain all kinds of things they you know really you know related to person perception and stereotyping and attitudes so so what's like the ultimate challenge that this lens model aims to help clarify like what is it psychologically that we know people are doing mm -hmm. but until now we didn't have a firm grasp on how it was unfolding well okay so basically the for the last 15 to 20 years, social psychologists have been increasingly studying um, intersectional stereotyping. And they've been basically doing it in a bottom-up kind of way, where they ask the question, you know, how does this particular manifestation of sexism differ depending on a person's racial group? Or how does this manifestation of racism differ depending on a person's sexual orientation group? And when you, when you, you know, explore the, the, the topic of intersectional stereotyping in a bottom-up way like that, what you end up with is a literature that has contradictory findings that are difficult to reconcile from the prevalent theoretical assumptions in this research area. So basically, like, one thing that we couldn't really account for was, why is it the case that sometimes we see evidence of intersectional stereotyping happening? Whereas in other moments, we see that people seem to sharpen their focus on just one identity, like race, and the intersection in these moments doesn't seem to be mattering. And the lens model provides an answer to that question, which is uh, what's happening here is people have intersectional lenses in their minds, but they also have simplistic lenses. And you would expect intersectional stereotyping to unfold when people are using an intersectional lens for viewing others, but you would expect it to completely fall to the wayside and to be replaced with something simpler when people use a simpler lens, for example, the lens of race. So yeah, so uh, to understand what that all means, <laughs> maybe yeah, we back up sorry, and say, yeah, sure. what is intersectionality? No, no, no you, that was the right answer, <laughs> but it reminded me, we should probably clarify what this intersectionality concept means. So what do we mean? <laughs> and what's interesting about it to me is how much it had been brewing in other fields before psychologists took it seriously. Yeah. So like, what's the idea here? What is the bold uh, claim of okay. an intersectional framework? Right, okay. So I wanna say upfront that the way that psychologists study intersectionality is more narrow than the way the term was meant to be used originally. So originally, intersectionality was a concept that came out of black feminist scholarship in both the humanities and in legal scholarship. And it was meant to be like, a framework for thinking about the world in which you, number one, uh, recognize the fact that hierarchical institutions can like sort of mutually inform one another. For example, the idea is that like sexist institutions serve to uphold racism and racist institutions serve to uphold sexism. And in which you, number two, question whether 
Western systems of knowledge and Western uh, institutions can adequately capture the complexity of what it means to be multiply marginalized. So that was sort of the, the original framework. It was meant to be very broad. It was meant to be sort of a postmodern critical framework for thinking about legal studies, for thinking about institutions, for thinking about knowledge, and for thinking in particular about who gets left out of those spaces. In psychology, we use a, a little bit, a, a bit of a sort of more streamlined definition. In, in psychological science, I would define intersectionality as an approach in which you question whether psychological processes depend on the multiple groups that a person belongs to. And what would be an example of thinking about multiple groups uh, or like oh, the notion of identity? <laughs> Let's get even more to the bottom, right? The sure, notion yeah, of identity yeah. Yeah. So, and, so and what I, it means. So when I refer to groups here, I'm mostly referring to demographic groups, a person's racial group, a person's gender group, a person's sexual orientation group. Um, and, um, and you can take an intersectional approach to psychological science in any domain of psychological study. Like people who do clinical assessment could look at whether diagnoses of depression depend both on the race and the gender of the person that they're interviewing, rather than just, you know, race, for example. Or um, you, you can study this stuff in the context of stereotyping, which is what I do. And you can ask whether racial stereotypes depend not just on a person's race, but also on whether they are gay versus straight. And so the, the idea is like, if we didn't have this appreciation for the fact that, you know, we are a product of several dimensions of identity at the same time, mm -hmm. we would overlook some nuance that otherwise could exist, right? So like, if I'm trying to understand people's judgments of uh, a black woman applying for a job, mm -hmm. and I just go, well, we have these theories of racial bias, that should explain what is likely to happen when this woman applies for a job. Mm -hmm. So are there examples like that, if you sort of could unpack, like, you know, why wouldn't just like a broad strokes racial bias approach to understanding that question be enough? Or or even, you know, that's just one example, right? There's people have looked at this in other domains too. Yeah. Um, but just to be concrete about like, what do we, what could happen? Okay. Yeah. So basically you hit the nail on the head with what this addresses. So essentially we don't really know to what extent psychological processes generalize across all people, unless we take an intersectional look at those processes. We don't know whether, as you pointed out, racial bias evenly extends to both Black men and Black women, or whether the experiences of Black women might be categorically distinct from those that Black men face. So the contribution of intersectionality in general is like an epistemological one. It helps us create a psychological science that is truly generalizable. And um, to get to your second point, there are definitely situations where the, the kind of stereotyping you see for an intersection can be super surprising from what you would have expected um, based on the dimensions of identities along which a person is marginalized. An example that I've used before is like, so if you, if you look at the data on audit studies, where you send resumes out across the country and where uh, you make it so that a random half of these resumes uses a name that implies that a person is a, is a black man versus a resume that implies that a person is a, is a white man. What you see in these audit studies is that systematically applicants who have stereotypically black sounding names receive lower callback rates than applicants who have stereotypically white sounding names. So we know, that we know that there's a racial bias in hiring against black men relative to white men. We know that if you do these same audit studies, but this time you send out resumes across the country and they all have white men's names, but now you make it so that a random half of them are implicated in being gay. The way that we do that is we typically... Um, we typically say that the person was the president of their LGBT alliance in college. Um, we know from these, these kinds of audit studies as well that callback rates are lower for gay applicants than they are for ostensibly heterosexual applicants. But the limited experimental data that we have on how people stereotype applicants who are both gay and black suggests that actually, in the context of hiring, it may be the case that gay black men are viewed more favorably 
than men who are gay but not black or who are black but not gay. So that's a really clear cut example of like, you know, what you would expect based on just like the simple knowledge of how racism works and how heterosexism works doesn't necessarily compute with what we ultimately see about how a member of an intersectional group tends to be stereotyped, at least in this like one particular experimental context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's like a, a quantitative theory of it where you just go like, oh, well, there are two marks against this person, right? Mm -hmm. Based on the racial bias literature, based on the sexual bias literature. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we should expect like that applicant to be absolutely untouched. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what? That, that probably happens in a lot of scenarios. It just doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, the, that hypothesis that you just raised, we often call that the double jeopardy hypothesis, which is like if you're marginalized along one group membership mm -hmm. as well as along another, then it stands to reason that you probably face some kind of like doubly intense marginalization uh, relative to if you were only marginalized along one of those groups. Whereas the intersectional theory approach is to say that there's something qualitatively different. It's not a quantitative combination of marks against you, no, but yeah. you actually occupy a qualitatively different category in people's minds. Exactly. With its own set of stereotype content, with its own set of evaluations that they might have toward you. So what your work then wants to do is go like, well, in the, the you know, I'm evaluating this person for a job. Do I exercise a racial bias that might occur in me? Do I exercise a, a sexual orientation bias that I have within me? Or am I leaping to that qualitatively distinct intersectional theory mm -hmm. in my you know brain about what, what it is that this applicant uh, is like? And so to sort of preface where your perspective is, what were the other ways that people have talked about, like how an individual would approach that kind of judgment mm. scenario? Okay, well, let me I'll first maybe by start by saying what my model would predict, and then I can possibly compare that with the other perspectives. So, okay, so basically, I've been creating this lens model of intersectional stereotyping. And the basic argument of the model is that we all have a repertoire of lenses in our heads that we can use for thinking about the people around us. Some of these lenses um, bring just one identity into focus, race by itself, or gender by itself, or age by itself. And then other lenses bring specific intersections of identities into focus, maybe race and gender in combination, or race and sexual orientation in combination. But the argument of the lens model is that people probably only use one lens at a time in a social environment. And what this means is that if you're in a social environment that forces you to use the lens of race, you should be exhibiting a racial bias, or probably no bias in these moments on the basis of sexual orientation. If in contrast, you were in a situation that caused you to use the lens of sexual orientation, you should do the reverse. Exhibit in this moment evidence of a sexual orientation-based bias, but maybe not any evidence whatsoever of a race-based bias. And then if you were using an intersectional lens specifically, here we would expect these intersectional patterns to unfold, the kind like I told you about previously. So according to my model, um, whether you exhibit just generic racial bias or generic um, sexual orientation bias or some kind of intersectional bias might depend just on the job. <laughs> you know, if it's a job that makes the, if, if, if it's a job for which you think race is really a relevant criterion to pay attention to, you're probably going to use the lens of race and you might overlook orientation. If the job seems like it's like, if it's a job for the president of an LGBT council <laughs> at a university, you might in this moment think that sexual orientation is relevant and here you might overlook race. Um, and if it's sort of a more generic position, like the one I told you about previously in the experimental data on this topic, you might just sort of inherently use an intersectional lens, which could lead to something very different from if you had been using sort of a race lens by itself or a sexual orientation lens by itself. So that's what my model predicts about this situation. The, the thing that makes this, this particular perspective different from what else is out there is that basically the other perspectives 
either tend to suggest that we inevitably pay attention to one identity more than others, or they suggest that we inevitably pay attention to everything at once. And I'm saying, I don't really think either of those is right. I think it's actually that like, whether we pay attention to everything at once or to something in particular is all dependent on which lens the context has brought into focus. And that, so the, the version where people only pay attention to one, mm-hmm. my impression of it was that it's also just like, there's a hierarchy of labels in my Rolodex. And if if race is relevant, that's always the one that I'm going to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to like, you know, if it's lower on the chain, it just never gets touched, right? Like predominantly people are biased in terms of a few distinct categories. And the other ones only come into play if they're like super unique in that situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, there are multiple different theoretical perspectives that have argued for something like this, and they don't all agree with each other on what are the essential categories. So for example, there's there's one hypothesis called the ethnic prominence hypothesis. And this hypothesis is that no matter what, ethnicity is going to take prevalence in your mind when you're thinking about other people, when you're forming an evaluation of them, when you're thinking about how to stereotype them, and that other things are less essential. But evolutionary perspectives argue kind of the opposite. They argue that, you know, that here what's essential is a person's ostensible sex group and a person's ostensible age group. But for evolutionary models, race is not quite as essential. It shouldn't be the kind of thing that inevitably shapes your impression. So, so there are different variations of these models. But yeah, the central argument is that you're exactly right. They argue that there are certain identities that are just at the top of the hierarchy. They should play a huge role in shaping how we think about people around us. The, the evolutionary m- a model makes sense, like the prediction makes sense The in that there's like a function to it, right? Like mm-hmm. the, presumably there's some adaptive reason why we would pay attention to these dimensions all the time. Like mating goals the, would be the evolutionary mm-hmm. argument for why those two, yeah. For the ethnicity dominance one, is there like, is there a strong sense of like why that should necessarily rise to the top? I truly don't know enough about that hypothesis mm-hmm. to say for sure. I will say I've been calling it the ethnic prominence hypothesis in particular because it's a hypothesis. It's not, hmm. it's not like, whereas the evolutionary, um, like the theory of evolution is what explains the other kind of, <laughs> whereas I, I'm not sure that the ethnic prominence hypothesis is a full-fledged theory that has an explanation as to why we do that. I think it's sort of observing that there do seem to be contexts in which race looks like it's the most salient. Yeah. And what's, what's cool too about, I think the lens model, and I want to ask you about the name in a second, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, is, is the idea that like, yeah, it's a one at a time, right? And it's, if for whatever reason I'm leaping to gender in this moment, mm-hmm. it means that I'm not accounting for the other things that characterize this person that I'm evaluating. Yeah. Right? It's, I, I pick my one, I got my ticket, and that's the one that I'm going with. Yep, this is the ticket um, for right now. Yep. And, and and in terms of like the the data, right? <laughs> the evidence that you have for this. Yeah. Um, so like how do we know that this happens? That people use one category at the expense of the other? The most compelling data that I have so far come from the a couple of experiments in the paper you're referring to that used the implicit association test, I think. Mm-hmm. Um so so In one of these experiments, what we were measuring was whether or not people would exhibit a pattern of implicit gender stereotyping that we usually see all around the world, where people in most locations are faster to associate men with science than women. We were looking at that particular bias. uh, It's a very robust bias. And our question was, might that pattern of stereotyping depend on whether or not you are using the lens of gender? And what we also asked was, what if you stopped using the lens of gender? What if you started using the lens of age? might gender stereotyping completely disappear? 
this, you know, this, this kind of stereotyping that emerges all over the world, might it like completely disappear? And might it be replaced with a different kind of stereotyping that's based on age? Um, and we found evidence of that. What we basically found in that particular study was that if we told people, pay attention to gender, go ahead and focus on who's a man and who's a woman. What we found here was that in these moments, people exhibited a gender bias such that they associated men with science more than women. They did so to equal degrees, regardless of whether the women and men were older versus younger. But if we instead said to them, we don't want you to pay attention to gender, we want you to go ahead and just focus on age. Um, here, what we found was that if you look at their reaction times, they no longer exhibit any gender bias whatsoever. No longer is it the case that they associate men with science more than women. But instead, what we actually saw in that particular paradigm was an age bias. Here, uh, we didn't ex expect this, but here what we actually found was that people seem to have an automatic association that links older folks with science more readily than younger folks. So we did that, we did that experiment. We, we actually followed up with a second experiment that tested the same conceptual question, but with a totally different um, set of target groups. In the second experiment, what we looked at was how do people stereotype people who are both black and children. So we looked at we looked at that intersection of both age and race. And the, um, there is evidence from another research lab that there are moments where sometimes people pay attention to race so strongly that they exhibit as much racial bias against black kids as they do toward black adults. So that's already been established. Sometimes it looks like race is just coming so sharply into focus that we don't see an intersectional pattern. We really see like this really, you know, scary, alarming pattern where kids are not even recognized as kids. They just face racial bias. So what we, what we looked at in, in my second experiment was whether that also depends on what people are paying attention to. And what we found was that if we, if we had people categorize black and white kids and adults by their racial groups, we replicated the pattern I just described to you. Here we found that people associated black individuals with weapons more quickly than white individuals. And we found that they, that they did that to equal degrees for both children and adults. But what we also found was that if people pay attention to age, that racial bias completely goes away. And now what you see is that people associate adults with weapons more readily than children. So, so in a sense, you're kind of what's happening is that people just don't notice race at all when they pay attention to, to age. Um, and if anything, what they do in these moments is they, they correctly categorize children as children. And in a sense, they associate them with innocence and it's harder for them to associate them with weapons. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to think like, what does that mean for the original finding, right? So like the how you would originally interpret that idea is just like people approach uh, or or even you might be tempted to segment out the groups and say that people have a bias specifically that pairs black children with weapons mm -hmm. more than white children. And what you're saying is it's not necessarily specific to like, that's the intersectional version, right? That would imply that like, that's something that comes with its own baked in stereotype. But instead, what's happening is people are drawing upon sort of a generic racial stereotype. And they're not even in that moment, bringing to mind the fact that these are kids, right? That's I, kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, basically, like I so the paradigm that I just described and the data that I have only speaks to what happens if you use the lens of race versus age. It doesn't really speak to what happens if you're using an intersectional lens. I actually don't know what people's intersectional lenses of black children specifically might be. Uh, but what I do know is that when people are motivated to use the lens of race, they will forget to notice whether children are children. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, yeah, and I think this can happen to, to everybody. I think everybody can be in certain social contexts reduced in the eyes of others down to something really simple. Mm -hmm. and, and, and sometimes something really dangerous. Yeah. So what does that mean? I mean, the fact that the original research found only the race bias suggests that there's something that either as a dominant category or that 
activity of doing this uh, IAT mm-hmm. evoked race? I can tell you, I think what happened. I mean, so the um, so in the original paper that I'm aware of, this was a this was a paper by Andy Todd and his colleagues. That that particular paper used a paradigm called the weapons identification uh, procedure. And in this procedure, what you're doing is you you quickly show people a face, and then after that, you show them an object, and the object is either a weapon or a tool, and you measure how quickly people recognize weapons as weapons. And the finding on the task is that when we when we use crimes before those weapons that are either black men's faces or white men's faces. What we typically see on that face is that on that task is that people are quicker to recognize weapons as weapons when they've been followed by black men's faces than white men's faces. In the paper that I'm referring to, Andy followed up and looked at whether or not the same thing would happen if the faces were of five-year-old children, uh, white versus black children. And he found that there was an equivalent level of racial bias toward these children as there was toward fully grown adults. But the reason I think that pattern emerges in that particular context is because the paradigm itself is related to the concept of crime. And the concept of crime in our culture is much more stereotypically linked with the concept of race than it is with the concept of age. So I actually think that the reason we see a pattern like that unfolding where race appears to dominate judgment is because the paradigm itself makes the lens of race more salient than it makes the other lenses salient. So how then do we apply this? Oh, let me go back to the point I was going to make before, which is the name uh, the oh, lens sure. model. Um, wh- that was not always the the name that you had been giving to this. No, right? or, or okay, <laughs> I, no, I, it wasn't always called the lens. So it always was a lens model. Um, at first, I wanted to call it intersectional categorization theory. <laughs> so when I wrote my <laughs> when I wrote my dissertation, I so the lens model draws really heavily on the ideas that come out of self-categorization theory and social identity theory. I really love those two theories and I love the whole European tradition of thinking about stereotyping and prejudice and intergroup dynamics. So I thought like, wouldn't it, and, and you know, other people like Michael Hogg has created spin-offs of self-categorization theory that also kind of use the name. So for example, he has something called uncertainty identity theory and the social identity theory of leadership. So I was like, okay, well, if Michael Hogg has done it, like maybe I could do it. Maybe I could call this like intersectional categorization theory. So that was the original like title that I had in mind for it when I was like, you know, finishing up my PhD and trying to impress people with a cool dissertation title. But at the crux of the, mo- the model, the model always always used the metaphor of social lenses to explain the complicated business of stereotyping. So that was always integral to it. And essentially, I just dropped the part of the title that wasn't going to be helpful or informative to people, and I just kept the lens part because I think that's really the heart of the of the model. So if I'm if I'm to press the metaphor, oh, like what are you liter- what are you picturing when you when you talk about these as lenses? Like what does it mean that these are lenses? I well, I guess listeners can't see this. I'm going to use my hand. I kind of think <laughs> of like I kind of think of like you know you sort of have this cognitive repertoire of lenses in your minds, and in a particular social situation, one of these lenses comes sharply into focus, almost like it's standing between you and the targets of your perceptions. And in my view, it sort of constrains what it is that you pay attention to about the targets of your perceptions. And it sort of causes everything else, every other demographic feature that's irrelevant to the lens to become sort of a blurry background feature in the moment. So I think of it as something that sort of lenses sharpen our focus on certain attributes and they simultaneously cause us to lose focus on others. When you use the lens of gender, you sharpen your focus on gender, you exhibit gender bias, gender stereotyping. But in these moments, you, you know, you allow your attention to a person's race or their ability status to become blurred background features. 
That's the way I see the metaphor in my head. Yeah. I, I also picture a little bit, you know, when you go to the eye doctor and they have that uh, massive uh, steampunk apparatus that comes over your face yep. and they're switching out the lenses, right? It's one at a time. Mm -hmm. And can I see what's in front of me or can I not see exactly. what's in front of yeah. me? No, that's really so nice. sort of like. <laughs> that's a great way to explain uh, the one at a time piece of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And a, and a hybrid of that. And then like, you know, like macro photography, right? Where I think that's kind of what you're saying, where it's like there's a depth of fields. And my lens is going to zoom in only on like the two centimeters in front of me mm -hmm. versus four centimeters. And whether I'm focused on this slice of the world mm -hmm. means I can't see the other slices of the world. Yeah. I, I can only see this one. Um, you know, what's funny about you... this metaphor is I, so I recently, okay. So when I posted about this, this lens model online for the first time, uh, people kept saying really positive things about it. And I felt really happy about that. But then I had one like internet troll who was like, who was like, <laughs> Lenses, like the concept of a lens is a really stupid metaphor. The concept that you mean to use or the, the metaphor you mean to use is the metaphor of a filter. And, and at the time I was like, well, forget that guy. He sucks. And I, like, I just didn't, you know, I didn't really think about it. I think I screenshotted it and I shared that to my friends. And then, um, and then, and then I did, I did like a job interview not too long ago. And I was talking with a couple of cognitive psychologists who study attention and by the way, like this all jives really well with what we've known about attention for a very long time. We have limited attentional resources. And if you, what they say, what the, the, the parlance that they use is that if you configure the attentional system to focus on certain kinds of stimuli, you will do so so strongly that you will completely overlook other things that previously would have been really distracting to you. So, um, so, so like what I've applied to the topic of stereotyping is very much something that we know seems to hold up just about how the mind works more generally. But in any event, I'm talking to them about the lens model. I'm telling them about the metaphor and I'm sitting in the car with like the chair of the department. He's like driving me to dinner and he's like, my one issue with the lens model is that you, you kind of use the wrong metaphor. I think what you really mean is filter. <laughs> I found my troll. <laughs> no. <laughs> so yeah, maybe it's, you know, maybe like somebody who's a specialist in cognitive psychology wouldn't agree with the, the metaphor, but basically I, I, you know, I, I chose that because I think it's relatable. I think it's accessible. I think it kind of gets the point across that I'm talking about the process of person perception. Um, and I just like it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, my, my, my alternative metaphor that I come up with uh, is like, um, you know, like those old like recipe boxes that that like grandmothers have <laughs> of like little index cards oh, yeah, with yeah. recipes written on it. Uh -huh. And it's a little box and it's filled with them. And I sort of imagine, right, like each of those index cards is a social category. Mm. Right? And, and written on that card is a bunch of assumptions I have about this category. Mm. And when I come to meet someone, I... I'm forced to pick one of these cards up, right? I can only follow one recipe at a time. I can't make multiple things. No, I no, no. Pull one no. Recipe. You've got to pick the intersectional recipe or the gender mm -hmm. recipe. Yeah. Right. And what is important, I think about it, comes to, not not to say like, uh, please rewrite your paper with my metaphor. No, but, go ahead, please, um, I will. <laughs> but what it raises, and the lens one does this just fine, right? Is that you have to have that card in your box to use it. Ah, you have to have that lens in wherever you're storing your lenses yes. <laughs> to use it, which brings up the question that always has made me wonder about the intersectional perspective, which is where do we draw the line, right? Like my, my impression of some of the other work in that world mm -hmm. is it's qualitative and you cannot understand someone until you know the exact qualitative distinction about that unique configuration of identities. But there's no, you know, there has to be some logical limit before I go like, where is the meaningful cutoff for people? Yeah, is it at age and race? Okay, I could I could account for that. Is it at age, race, and sexual orientation? Okay, maybe people have stereotypes about black gay men, and then like 
uh, it, does it is it then further moderated by how old you are right so what i wonder is do i need to have that recipe card in my box for it to be useful at all and what happens if i don't like, have the it, recipe like, card like, like how complicated can the recipe become before you yes. shouldn't even be putting it on a card <laughs> yeah right before i go like I, this is just i'm improving a recipe okay all right so let me there's a couple of things to unpack i'll start with the question of where lenses come from so i i I'm not a developmental person, but there is a really fantastic developmental perspective that I write about in my paper called developmental intergroup theory. And um, essentially, my, my understanding of that theory is that it argues that children are socialized from like a really early age, both through like active socialization processes, but also just through like implicit learning based on what they see in the wider world, which groups, uh, which social groups are like the important bases of sorting the people around them. And it comes from everywhere. It comes from like teachers saying like, good morning, boys and girls, like at the start of each class time to, to them driving through neighborhoods and noticing that we live in a de facto, a world of de facto racial segregation in which you can see like certain neighborhoods being like visibly better resourced or, or, or less resourced than others. And you can see in your mind whether or not that appears to correlate with people's ethnic background or their racial background. Um, and even if adults don't like specifically talk about race, kids might like right away be like, well, that seems like it matters. <laughs> um, and so she, so, so basically like my, my assumption about lens, where lenses come from is that they, is that they come through these basic socialization acquisition processes. If we, if, if we live in a world where we believe that something matters as an important basis for sorting others, we may come to form really clear cut stereotypes related to that particular identity. Um, uh, so that's sort of the, the, the thought I have about where it comes from. And then I believe that we really only maintain the recipe card or lenses in our repertoires to the extent that they continue to serve a function for us. Like if we, if we lived in like some kind of world where there was true parity between people who were straight and who were queer, it might become like less and less relevant to regularly sort the people around you based on their sexual orientation groups. And you could imagine that some people start to throw away the recipe. So that's the thought about where these things come from. The second issue that you raised, which was like the question of like, what are the upper limits of intersectional stereotyping? That's a harder question to answer. I, I mean, I, I basically think that in principle, um, intersections could be like, in principle, they could be like infinitely complex. I think in practice, it's probably rare for people to have clear cut crystallized stereotypes in their minds about what queer, black, able-bodied, women who are midwesterners are like you know like like i think if you make the intersection complex enough at a certain point people are no longer gonna they won't have lived in a world where they had enough socialization experiences to have a clear understanding of that particular subgroup of people um so that's one issue with sort of the what happens when identities become too complex another issue with it is that like at a certain point if, if you let identities become increasingly 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 complex you have to also ask the question at what point am i no longer even stereotyping somebody and at what point am i just individuating them <laughs> you know seeing them as the individual that they are rather than putting them into a box if I'm, if I'm paying attention to everything you could argue that i'm actually not stereotyping them at all but what i'm actually doing instead is seeing them as the individuals that they are so i've talked a lot my basic my basic sort of view on this is that more frequently discussed intersections within a culture are probably more likely to be prevalent bases along which we categorize and think about the people around us. I think most people probably do have a race by gender lens in their minds, a clear cut understanding of what black women are stereotyped as being like, for example, at least in the United States. Um, I, I'm, I'm less confident about whether they have more complicated intersectional understandings of what it means to be a black woman than that. So that's what I think from the perceiver end of things. I have like one more thing to say about this. I'm sorry for mm -hmm. going on. I asked you. <laughs> okay. The other thought though, is that 
I do think we're, what, what, what the lens model talks about is how we perceive other people. What it doesn't mm-hmm. talk about is how we perceive ourselves or our own life narratives. I do believe that people's life narratives, like the, the, the sort of complex world in which they live, the location of the universe that they inhabit, I do believe that that is shaped in potentially infinitely complex ways as a function of every identity that you harbor. Um, and that's because like time happens. <laughs> there are moments where you become just your racial group in the eyes of others, or just an intersection in the eyes of others, or the individual that you are in the eyes of others. And it bounces around for you as a function of the unique constellation of social identities that you inhabit. So even if the model can't speak clearly to moments in which people use like super, super, super complex lenses, that doesn't mean that the experiences of individuals living in the world isn't itself super, 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 super complex. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Great. <laughs> and, 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 and so I, I have two thoughts in response to that. And one is in response to that specific thing that you just said, which I was wondering about the self-categorization part, right? Because ah. so much of it was inspired by that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we bring it back to that. I mean, is the implication that like in this moment, I can see myself as an intersectional identity, right? Like white and male. And that intersection is how I view myself in this moment to the exclusion of other you know, things that, that also characterize me. Is that the implication, right? That even when I, like my actual reality, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. is a product of all the many things that make me who I am. But it, as I perceive myself in this moment, as I make a prediction about whether I will be successful at something uh, as I'm about to take, you know, a math exam, right? If in a stereotype threat context, as I think about myself, does the same lens model apply? I think so. I think, I I think in certain ways it does. Yeah. I mean, to the example that you just raised, uh, Margaret, she has that really famous experiment showing that, you know, if undergraduate women think about, um, if undergraduate East Asian women think about themselves in terms of their gender, um, they experience stereotype threat. If they think of themselves in terms of their ethnic background, they experience not stereotype threat, but if anything, sort of a stereotype lift. So definitely, I do believe that these compartmentalized processes of thinking of other people can be processes that we apply to ourselves. But that's just my like my theoretical mm-hmm. opinion. I don't have good data on that. Um, yeah, so I think so is my short answer. And, and so the other thing that in terms of the um, stereotype part, um, and, and judging others, the intersectional identity has to be a category label that carries some meaning, right? Like you're saying, Maybe that does, isn't true of everyone, right? And so I'm kind of wondering, like, what happens when people are encouraged to use that intersectional label for someone, but they do not have any assumptions, right? Mm. It sort of reminds me of these issues in, in you know, public opinion, where we go, I'm answering a survey, you've asked my opinion about the war in this country, I have no idea. I have no information. Nevertheless, like I can concoct an opinion in this moment based on what comes to mind as aroused by that question. So I, I just wonder if there's if there's a process of like stereotype integration that people have like lay theories about. Like, I guess I it will be an additive quantitative version of this if i don't already have like a qualitative category i think that's probably i think you hit the nail on the head yeah i think that in these moments so the the study that i thought or what i thought of when you were raising that question was like the those experiments that i think ziva kunda did on like what people think about harvard educated carpenters so you take two totally (laughs) different categories and you combine them (laughs) and just see what people do um (laughs) and they they generate like new creative content to try and make sense of the (laughs) of the different category labels yeah basically though what i was going to say is i think i think that they do 
they do do some sort of category integration like you're describing. And there's there's really great theoretical models that explain this process. I think John Freeman's um, dynamic interactive model of person construal is a really great example of this. Uh, basically, in that perspective, you know, um, if you encounter somebody, but you don't have a, a particular intersectional stereotype per se, but you recognize their race and their gender, you could allow in the moment both their race and their gender to constrain in some kind of parallel constraint fashion the ultimate impression that you have of that particular person. So, so yeah, I do think that if you don't have the intersectional stereotype, you probably use whatever's available to you at hand and you kind of try and mentally integrate it, some, sometimes in ways that could be surprising, like the Harvard-educated carpenters. <laughs> Which means also that, like, that category can capture my attention, that intersectional category can capture someone's attention, even absent a prepared stereotyped response. Yeah, right? possibly. Mm -hmm. If you think about like the, the ways that you outline, you know, why, why might someone pay attention to this category at the exclusion of the other? You know, one is like, what is it that makes them distinct in this moment uh, from the social context? Um, you know, who is saying, I'm forgetting all, you, you could <laughs> expand on these better than yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is it, is it possible that people could attend to an intersectional category, even if they don't have any real probably, backlog? Probably. I mean, that's probably how intersectional stereotypes form. Like, mm. I mean, you have to start from a place. So you're a kid, you don't know anything yet. And you're like recognizing all the different ways in which people are segregated and hierarchically organized. And you over time start to come up. I mean, you might first start with like very general groupings of people, men and women, and your perception of men and women, and your perception of white individuals versus black individuals. But then eventually you start to you start to sort of have more exposure to more complexity of the human experience, and you start to form intersectional stereotypes. And I would be willing to wager that to get to that stage of having crystallized intersectional stereotypes, you have to start with the stage that you brought up, which is where you've got this new person who's a new intersection, and you're like just trying to integrate to the best of you can what it is that you know about this person, you know, in a stereotypic kind of way. Which is a natural segue to to ask, what's the future of this work? Right, oh. what, what is left un, undone? Right, we said I don't know if it's before we started this, but that. Well, okay, so basically, like I at this stage, what I'm basically doing as a scientist is I'm like wildly speculating about a model that has, <laughs> <laughs> you know, about a model that really only has a couple of experiments of support so far. So I, I, I like. A few basic extensions of this are just like continuing to test the basic assumptions of the model in the context of intersectional stereotyping. I'd love to do this in contexts that are like like more applied settings as well. Like like I told you before that there's that example where sometimes people exhibit more higher like more favorable hiring evaluations of gay black men than they, than they do of black men who aren't gay or of gay men who aren't black. I mean, that should depend on which lens you're using. So it'd be nice if I could get in there and sort of show that that particular that particular finding probably depends a lot on the position that you're hiring for or what has been made temporarily salient to you. That's one thing. The The direction that I'm like the most excited about for this model, though, was actually spurred to me by uh, a person who was a reviewer on the paper. Um, the person who was a reviewer on the paper was like, okay, so you show that sometimes like, like racial bias just completely flatlines when people pay attention to age. Like, could this be a tool for anti-bias interventions? And at first I, you know, I went to my co-authors and I was like, what should I say? I feel like we should say like, don't, don't use this as an anti-bias tool. Like we're not, <laughs> there's not enough data to stand behind that as a, as a real possibility. But then, but then we, you know, we talked about it more and I ended up thinking like, you know, in principle, okay. So what I didn't want people to do was I didn't want people to divine, to, to try and design interventions where essentially you try to get them to stop being racist by getting them to attend to a different demographic group. I didn't, I don't think it's like super helpful if you try to get people to stop being racist, but maybe start being ageist because that's less problematic. Right. Why be racist when you can be so Right, exactly. Yeah, I didn't want that situation. Um, 
but but then you know as we talked more about like what a lens could sharpen your focus on what we realized was that in principle any identity could serve as the basis for a lens and these could be demographic groups but they could also be other things like the shared professional identity that you and your coworkers have. You and I are both social psychologists and we could in the moment come to view each other through that lens. And we're probably both sort of doing that a bit right now. <laughs> and, um, and the prediction of the model is that if I was to make this particular lens related to our shared identity salient enough, then you and I should stop caring at all about the things that divide us. And so I think that that is a super cool idea. And it's, it's, it's not even necessarily like in the realm of intersectional stereotyping. It's more just like a basic like application of the lens model to to just general, you know, stereotyping and discrimination. But I'd love to see if that ends up being the case, because I think it could be really compelling if it were. It's just reminding me when I did the episode on the context hypothesis for this, you know, the, the one of the origins of the um, notion that we could sort of ease racial bias through contact was in World War Two, when black and white soldiers were fighting alongside each other. There were like constraints in the military. Mm -hmm. They had to combine combine troops together. Ordinarily, there were black troops, there were white troops, they didn't integrate, but they kind of just were forced to, to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And everyone was worried like, oh, this is going to be a train wreck. Everyone's going to be at each other's throats. No big deal. Got along fine. So so that is evidence that like, oh, bring people together and they'll, you know, these things, these prejudices will ease. But there is some indication that like when these white soldiers went home, they didn't, this, <laughs> this attitude did not persist or generalize. And it could just be because in this moment, at, to the exclusion of race, I'm thinking only about our shared identity right. as Americans fighting in this war. But take that identity away, you know, take that lens out of my toolkit when I go back home and the war's over. What, I have no good reason to bring that back into the equation. I think that's exactly right. That's what I, that's where I was going to say. That's what I was going to respond to you if you hadn't said it. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's like, <laughs> sorry, I should have no, let you. No, it's okay. This is your, this is your podcast. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, th I think like you're in this environment that makes the shared identity salient and it does it does so to the exclusion of race and then you, like you said you go back into the wider world and that lens isn't chronically salient anymore and so racism comes back so i think i mean yeah so that that's another thing that is like worth critiquing the lens model over which is that like it can never be a permanent solution to the problem of stereotyping at best what it can be leveraged for is getting rid of problematic stereotypes and replacing them with things that could be more favorable like positive feelings you have toward professional in-group members or something. But at the end of the day, no matter what, like you're always stereotyping in the lens model. The lens model doesn't answer the question that other people try to answer with their models, which is like, when do we individuate versus stereotyping altogether? And that might actually be the more fruitful direction <laughs> to explore when it comes to, you know, anti-bias interventions. Well, very cool. Uh, we'll keep my uh, eyes out uh, for wh whatever new is coming down the pipeline. But uh, I just wanted to say thanks for taking the time to share all this. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. All right, that'll do it for this time. Big thanks to Chris for sharing his work on the podcast. You can check out the show notes of this episode for links to his website and to the research that we talked about. For more about this show, fire up the internet and type opinionsciencepodcast.com. And if you typed it in the right spot, you'll end up at the show's website, where you can find all previous episodes, including full transcripts. Subscribe to Opinion Science, where podcasts get subscribed to. And it really does mean a lot when you rate and review the show on big platforms like Apple Podcasts podcasts. But I think that's all I've got this time. So uh, we're done. <laughs> and uh, see you in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye bye.